Yuri Lepstein here with the third episode of our Winter is Here podcast, where we discuss not only how we arrived at this battle between tyranny and democracy, but perhaps more importantly, how we can win. My co-host Gary couldn't make it today, but I'm excited to welcome my friend and the guest for today's show, Jay Nordlink. Jay is a journalist, a senior editor of National Review, a book fellow of the National Review Institute, and a music critic for The New Criterion and The Conservative. Now, Jay, I I know that you're used to being on the other side of these conversations, but I'm very happy that you agreed to join me today. Great to see you. And I say see because we have video. That's right. Our listeners won't be able to see the video, but we do get a chance to see each other, which is nice. Just to get us kicked off here, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the historical context of what's going on. So obviously, as all of our listeners know at this point, Putin has invaded Ukraine in a brutal war of aggression three weeks ago. And over the course of this war, it has been very interesting for me to listen to what Putin has been saying to his own people. Mm -hmm. And some of the language that he's been using, the terminology, the arguments appear to me to be quite reminiscent of other sort of ultra-nationalistic, paranoid types of arguments. I mean, he has called for Russians to expel a fifth column as one would spit out a gnat. And he's promoted the idea of a self-purification of the Russian people. Mm -hmm. So, Jay, I know this is something that you've studied and written about for decades at this point. I wonder if you could try to put, you know, Putin's words in a bit more of a historical context. Sure. Well, Putin rises to the top at the end of 1999, I think. I've spent more than 20 years asking people, very knowledgeable people, Russians and others, what is Putin? Who is Putin? Is he a classic KGB colonel? Is he a Russian romantic and imperialist? Is he a nationalist? Is he a commie? Is he a classic egocentric dictator? And I've had many interesting answers. And my conclusion, you may think this is sort of odd, Uriel, my conclusion is it doesn't matter much. We need not be a precise shrink here. What he is is a menace. He's another brutal, expansionist, egomaniacal dictator. I had a long afternoon with Bukovsky, the Soviet-era dissident Vladimir Bukovsky, a few months before he died. And I said, you know, what is Putin? And what Bukowski said is he's a product of the system, meaning the Soviet system. He said everything he does has a birthmark on it. And I'm afraid I thought of Gorbachev, but that's not what he meant. Everything he does has a Soviet birthmark on it. He's a classic product of the system. He thinks that the dissolution of the USSR was a great tragedy and so on. Is he also a Russian imperialist and romantic? Yes, I suppose so. Again, I really don't care. I remember I had an old dear friend from Georgia, son of a sharecropper. He was in my grandparents' generation, really. But sometimes, you know, I'd bother him and he'd be sick of me and he'd tell his wife, I ain't studying that boy no more. I'm just not studying that boy no more. And I'm just not studying Putin anymore. He is a brute. He's a monstrous dictator who is killing people virtually for sport. And you know, I believe just about all the arguments that can be made about Putin. Is he scared of a democratic example 
in a neighboring country? Sure. Is he scared of democratic, coup-minded protesters in the streets of his own country? Of course. Does he want to reconstitute some of the Soviet Union or the old Russian Empire? Of course. Uh, this is the same old stuff. And I remember Bukowski told me that the communist leaders used to cry, encirclement, encirclement. They're encroaching on us. Beware the invader to distract the people from their own problems, you know? Same old stuff. And what I wonder almost every day is what the Russian people are hearing, what news they are getting, because that's critically important. Can they circumvent state media if they want to, and do they want to? And final thing I'll say, Uriel, before shutting up for a bit is, yes, millions of Russians have left the country, and they're streaming out now. And, and Putin has addressed this angrily. But my guess is that this emigration benefits him the way it has dictators past and present. It did the Castros. Emigration was a huge boon to the Castro regime. It gets troublemakers out of your hair. It's helped Maduro and Venezuela a lot. I think there are more than 5 million Venezuelans in exile by now. And from Russia, so many bright, ambitious, industrious, independent-minded, potentially critical people have left. I can't imagine that's not good for the guy, but you may have another opinion. Sadly, I think you're right. And I also agree with you that exploring Putin's mindset is almost irrelevant at this point, right? I mean, I think we have spilled barrels of ink collectively at this point, trying to explore who Putin is, what he's thinking, has his mentality shifted, has he changed, etc. And, and I think you're right that we've probably gone overboard with that. And in so doing, we're almost negotiating with ourselves, right? Because we don't actually know what the hell he's thinking. And the more we try to divine it and react to it, I think the more at risk we are of reacting not to what he has said or done, but rather to what we perceive him to be. We've seen this type before, and I say, watch what he does. It's interesting to listen to what he says. Often he's very candid, but just watch what he does. Does he censor the press, ban an independent media? Does he forbid genuine elections? Does he arrest critics, poison them, kill them? Does he redraw international borders by force? That's really what we need to know. No need to guess. Here's yet another one, yet another one of these... Uh, territory gobbling murderous brutes the kind we've seen before and whether these guys are black meaning fascist or red meaning communist i swear i don't care two sides of the same coin it's as a dear professor once said to me who cares whether the boot is red or black as long as it's stamping on the human face huh. I, I hadn't heard that it's unfortunately a very apt expression I want to dig in a little bit more and think a little more about the messaging that we're getting, both from within the Russian regime in terms of their messaging to the West, but also, more importantly, perhaps, their messaging to the Russian people. Mm -hmm. A few days ago, I actually had what turned out to be one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a little while. When I was a kid, a couple of decades ago, my parents would send me to Russia for the summer. Actually, I would go to these various summer camps, and and for the context of our of our listeners, I my my parents are from the former Soviet Union, and of course, for the camps that I was in and the social context that I was in, I was probably the only American that these kids had ever met, 
And I remember at one point, you know, one of them looks at me and he had just found out that I was Jewish. And so he looks at me and he says, you're an American and a Jew? The very idea of those two things, he looked at me as though I essentially had just grown horns, right? I'd just grown a tail. It wasn't in an anti-Semitic or negative way. It was just in a shocked way. He had never met someone like me. But one of those other children at the time, one of those other children, a few days ago reached out to me. Mm. He's now an adult. He's married with children. Obviously, I, I won't say any more to, to protect his identity, but he reached out to me from within Russia. And initially, I mean, I was certainly very surprised. And I'll be honest, I was a little suspicious. You know, who is this person who's, who's reaching out to me from within Russia, especially because of, you know, obviously RDI and what we're doing is quite public. But he reached out to me in Russian to say that he wanted me to know, as one of the only Americans he'd ever really met, that many Russian people did not support the Putin regime, that he believed it to be a criminal regime, and that basically he just felt that I needed to know that. And what followed actually was an hour-long phone call. Now, mind you, this was 3 a.m. in Russia when he reached out to me. So they'd put their kids to bed, and he and his wife were just desperate to talk to someone from outside the country. You know, and, and we talked a lot about how they got their information, you know, various telegram channels and VPNs in order to break through. But the fact is that these folks were well-educated, whereas obviously most people in Russia are not. And most people who live outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg are not in a position to be getting VPNs and to be using telegram. Yeah. And so when I think about Putin's messaging to the Russian people... Like you, I don't particularly care about Putin's mindset, but I do care about his words. Mm. And I do care about the arguments that he uses because I think they're revealing not just of kind of Russia's intentions, but more importantly, they're revealing of what he wants the Russian people to believe and whether or not he's able to convince them of those things matters to us. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the words that he uses, the arguments, the rhetoric, the disinformation, the lies, to what extent do you think these things are liable to be successful in the long term? And what do you think the people in the West can do to try to combat it? Well, I often think of a song lyric from Oscar Hammerstein II, you've got to be carefully taught. It's a song about racism from South Pacific. Uh, no one's born that way. You've got to be carefully taught for good or ill. And I think it's natural for people to be patriotic, maybe even nationalist. And it's probably natural for people to want to believe their leaders, uh, not in the United States, I would say, or maybe other societies, but around the world generally, I think. And yet there are other options now with the internet. There are all sorts of channels, and I'm not talking about television channels, I'm talking about streams, avenues, ways of getting news, information, opinion. And I hope a lot of that penetrates. But of course, a person has to want to seek it out. And most people just want to get on with life. There's a famous old expression, people don't make history, they make a living. You know, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? What about tomorrow? And can Vladimir Putin and his government convince Russians that Ukraine is a threat to Russia, 
uh, that these are a bunch of Nazis that are a physical threat to Russia, a security threat. That would be a heck of an achievement, convincing people of that. Maybe he can do it. But I hope that walls crack and that there are moments when people say, this is a bill of goods. This is nonsense. Like when that incredibly brave woman, that TV broadcaster, walked onto that set and held up that sign saying, this is propaganda, these are lies, don't believe it, stop the war. Does that make a difference to people? Maybe to some. Other people will think, oh, here's just another heretic and traitor. And I hope that Western leaders talk to Russians directly. Ronald Reagan did when it was harder. I mean, this was pre-internet, pre-web And some people heard him, including Natan Sharansky in the Gulag. They had heard that Reagan declared a certain year, I think 1983, the International Year of the Bible. And here in America, you might roll your eyes and say, oh, year of the Bible. Yeah, what a crock. Just another stupid, pious, motherhood and apple pie thing. But it meant something to people. And the first time, maybe the only time, Andrei Sakharov met Jean Kirkpatrick, he said to her, Your name is known in every cell in the gulag. And why? Because she had actually named the names of Zex prisoners on the floor of the UN. And if I were president of the United States, that's kind of a laugh. I would speak as directly to Russians as I could. And I would cite political prisoners or other brave hearts, you know, starting with Navalny, but plenty of others as well. This lets people know that they're not alone when they feel alone. And I think the West should express a kind of solidarity and put the lie to the idea, the Putinist lie, and before that, the communist lie, that we anti-communists or anti-dictatorship types are anti-Russian. So a famous right-wing blogger or podcaster with 3 million Twitter followers uh, tweeted the other day, Russian lives matter. They certainly do. And the great threat to Russian lives is Vladimir Putin and his government. And people in a position to do so ought to say this as loudly as possible. There are more political prisoners in Russia today, according to Memorial and Vladimir Karamurza, than there were in the late Soviet period. This kind of thing matters a lot. Putin is killing a hell of a lot of Ukrainians. He's killed a fair number of Russians, too, and imprisoned them and deprived them of a proper life. I wouldn't even say democratic, a a decent life where there's something like the rule of law, something like justice, where they have some say in their own government. Donald Trump and others say over and over, Vladimir Putin loves his country. He loves his country so much he's looted it. And a lot of these guys, his oligarchs, live abroad. They're not in Russia and their children go to our best prep schools and I don't begrudge them that and they... These guys have have big yachts. I don't especially begrudge them that, except that the money was stolen. So what, what kind of love of country is that? That you would stomp out, that you would crush vestiges of democracy, vestiges of liberalism, and so on. I really like that approach, right? Thinking about it in that way. Certainly, I'm familiar with the person whom you referred to, who was Candace Owens, who wrote that tweet. And in the interest of full disclosure, I actually responded to her somewhat sarcastically noting that my father is from Moscow and my mother is from Kiev. So in her note that Russian lives matter, you know, do Ukrainian lives matter as well? Or should I only care about my father and not my mother? 
But what I find particularly compelling in, in kind of what you've just outlined is this idea that in order for Russian lives to matter, they have to matter to their own leaders. And right now, they're the people who are most responsible for the Russian people, meaning the Putin regime and his inner circle. I mean, he couldn't care less about the Russian people, about actual Russians. And, you know, what I really wish we would hear from our own government, we would hear more from our own government, is the extent to which the Russian government has pillaged Russia, has destroyed Russian lives, destroyed Russian freedom, arrested I've even lost count. I think now we're well above 25,000 people just in the last three weeks since this war has begun for protesting against it. That's the kind of message that I think might have a chance of breaking through. And, you know, of course, one of the key challenges I think we're facing is also a dearth of native level Russian speakers mm-hmm. in the U.S. government. I remember just being shocked when, you know, Hillary's reset button to Lavrov had, was mistranslated. Now, again, it was the type of minor mistranslation that even a heritage speaker such as myself could easily have made. But, you know, when we think of kind of this public diplomacy, it almost feels like we're missing a significant element of where we try to appeal directly to the people who are most impacted by the regime. I could have said in response to the Russian lives matter, they do. Boris Nemtsov Boris Nemtsov's exactly. life mattered. Sergei Magnitsky's life mattered. And just try to highlight a few martyrs, dissidents, political prisoners, and talk back to the idea that Putin is Russia. You remember that famous lackey in the Duma, or that famous statement he made around the time of the Sochi Olympics or just after? can't remember his name, Uriel, you might. He said, there is no Russia without Putin. And what an insulting thing, you know. And, and, and these guys, I know from my study of dictatorships, always want to equate themselves with the nation. Always. It's just, you know, their own political fate, maybe their own physical fate that they're thinking about, because obviously Putin wants to die in bed. But they equate themselves with the nation. And I think other people should do their best not to let these guys get away with it. There's a novelist who was quoted. Who quoted him the other day? I can't remember. I think Luke Harding quoted him. I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of this novelist, Mikhail Shushkin, perhaps. Mm, I can't say I'm familiar. He and other Russians I've heard, I've seen statements from, have used, he used the word embarrassing. He said, it's embarrassing. He said, I wish to apologize to to the Ukrainians. Forgive us. It's it's not us. And yet it's done in the Russian name, isn't it? So I'm sure that many Russians, certainly those with conscience, feel a kind of responsibility. You know, even though they're not personally responsible, they're attached to it somehow. Well, my friend who reached out to me, I mean, that was his first instinct. You know, the message was so apologetic. You know, he wanted to say, listen, I and he said this, that he felt ashamed. That was the exact word that he used. I feel ashamed. And it's such a challenging thing to respond to because on the one hand, we as RDI, we support the sanctions leveled against the Putin regime and therefore by extension, the Russian nation. But this guy who reached out to me was a perfectly well-meaning person. Mm-hmm. with a young family to support who essentially lost most of his life savings as a result of this mm-hmm. and who at this point wants to leave Russia but essentially can't. I must say I hate that. It's why I so love these Magnitsky sanctions because mm-hmm. they target particular wrongdoers rather than whole peoples. 
they sanction individuals who are human rights abusers rather than whole peoples. And yet, we're in an awful situation now. And I wonder whether putting the screws on the Putin government, and maybe by extension putting the screws on Russia, will this cause a rallying around the flag, a rallying around Putin? Or will it embolden people in a way so that they say, enough, he's made us a pariah on the world stage, he's killing us, even if we supported him in the past, restored Russian pride, blah, blah, blah. He is now more troubled than he's worth. I wonder whether Russians will think this in substantial numbers. I wonder whether oligarchs will think it. The guy's been great for me. He's feathered my bed, but now he's more troubled than he's worth. I wonder. For the oligarchs, I certainly think, or I hope, and, and I believe that that will be some of the impact. I mean, we've seen it already, right? I mean, you've now had a number of oligarchs come out against the war. You've had a number sort of tacitly try to distance themselves for fear of the sanctions that they would be affected by. But to me, what was most impactful and you know, what I'm struggling with is that, again, my friend who reached out, part of his note was that prior to this war, everything to him seemed fine, right? Which was somewhat of a very sad thing to hear, right? I mean, you had the 2014 invasion of Crimea. You had the carpet bombing of Syria. You had military coming in to prop up the dictators of Kazakhstan and Belarus. And of course, none of this mentions the absolutely mind-boggling level of kleptocracy that exists at the highest levels of the Russian government. And yet for this person, it seemed you know, he was living his life and he was keeping his head down. And I sympathize with that. But at the same time, these sanctions, as terrible as they are for him, have forced him into a position where he has felt the need to reach out to me, at least, and express his condemnation of the actions of the Putin regime, which, you know, nothing before had led him to do that. And so I wonder if as terrible as these types of sanctions are and as painful as the impacts will be, unfortunately, not just for the Russian elite, but for the broader people, might they not play that role of waking up the public in a very rude awakening kind of way, but nevertheless, in a way that might force or lead to some type of pressure or change from within Russia? I wonder which way this will tip. Will people think, my God, Putin and the others were right. They really are our enemy in the West. Look at what they're doing. to My gosh, they were right. Or will it tip in a way that says, nope, it's not us. It's Putin and his men. They've got to go. I wonder. That's why I think it's so important that we pair these sanctions with aggressive, in a positive sense, public diplomacy. You know, the Russian people need to understand that this isn't about them. And that's why when I see Tchaikovsky symphonies getting canceled. Disgusting. I love Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky is not to blame for Putin's decisions. It's insane. Disgusting. Ignorant. Stupid. That's exactly right. It's like not performing Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, and so on during World War II. Ridiculous. And yet there's this instinct among the American public, or I'm seeing it now, where in, you know, New York Russian restaurants are struggling. Awful. 
Yeah. The people who run those restaurants. Why do you think Russians left in the first place? Why do you think they're living abroad? You know, they voted with their feet, for God's sakes. People have got to divorce governments from peoples. Certainly in dictatorships or fear societies, Sharansky would say. You could argue that in a democracy, the government is a reflection of the people, at least a majority. That you could argue. But in situations of dictatorship, oh, come on. And by the way, I'm often told that Putin is popular in Russia. I'm even prepared to believe it. But he doesn't act like a person confident of his own popularity. If you're popular, why do you have to ban an independent press? Why do you have to forbid free elections? Why do you have to arrest, imprison, or kill political opponents? I think dictators often have a sense, almost always have a sense of their own illegitimacy. They're afraid of the people, or at least some of them, and well, they should be, because they're not legitimate. It's clear, I think, you know, that we agree there needs to be this pairing of pressure on the regime with reaching out to the people and really trying to divorce the people from the regime. And for what it's worth, I also agree. I think Putin's popularity is grossly exaggerated. Look, the left told me for years, decades, that Fidel Castro was popular in Cuba among the Cuban people. One of the things I said to that was, great, let him prove it by holding an election. Oh, no, can't do that. And now I hear from the right largely that Putin's popular in Russia. Great, let him prove it. Instead, Nemtsov is murdered and Navalny's in prison. And my co-host Gary is in exile. You got it. So you mentioned this new right, and I want to explore that a little bit more. <laughs> it's an old right that's new again. <laughs> <laughs> old yeah. right that's well put. We Reaganites were the new right, but now the old right's the new right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's well put. And I want to explore a little bit that approach. So you've got Putin's sort of, quote-unquote, anti-woke supporters, right? Sympathizers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, uh, you know, of course, very famously, the white supremacist Nick Fuentes, mm. whose conference Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar attended. What do you think is motivating that group to mm. ultimately prop up a dictator like Putin? Macht. Strength might. They admire strength. You know, they admire autocracy. Boy, no one pushes him around. And remember what Trump said about Kim Jong-un's generals? Boy, do they stand up straight and they snap to attention. Boy, do yeah, yeah, of course they do. And, you know, there's this idea that Putin is some defender of Christian civilization. And he's against an LGBT, I never get the letters right, agenda. LGBTQ, yeah. And so, yeah, they have this idea that he's one of them. Plus, people they hate oppose Putin. And there's a very, very strong sense of tribe. Oh, all the bad people, the elite people, the fancy people, they're for Ukraine and against Putin? Well, I must be for Putin. He must be for me, standing up for the little guy. It's an age-old story. There are people who hate liberal democratic values. And this I've had to learn. It's, it's been a bitter pill, a tough pill to swallow. But I've certainly learned it in my adult life. There are people, including in free countries, including in liberal democracies, who despise liberal democratic values of pluralism, the rule of law, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of worship, or non-worship. They think all this is very weak and that we're under great civilizational threat. And uh, Putin is actually a man standing up for Christendom, for Western civilization. Instead, he's a great destroyer. And if people don't see it now, they never will. Not everyone clings to the news the way you and I do, Uriel. You know, I cut them some slack. I don't fault them. So if they didn't know it before, you know, okay. But they must know it now. And if they don't, they never will. 
So if they don't know it now, they never will. I mean, those are pretty scary words, right? What else could he do? You know, <laughs> bomb Des Moines? Is that what it would take? Even then he'd have his excusers. Oh, the Iowans provoked him. They encroached <laughs> on him. They spooked him. You know, I can't disagree with you. The aforementioned Jean Kirkpatrick said some people always blame America first. And she was talking about the left and her party, her then party, the Democratic Party. There are people on the other side now blaming America first. We provoked him. We encircled him. NATO is bad. The Ukrainians are uppity. They're an uppity people that thought they were European and they wanted to join the EU and NATO. And the good people in Ukraine in the East, the Russian speakers, oh, they wanted to be with Russia. Nonsense. Putin has murdered them. He's flattened Kharkiv, for example. Pardon my pronunciation. Kharkiv. Not a Russian speaker in Ukraine, as far as I know, wants to live in a police state. Who would? Except for those running it. The resistance in Kharkiv spoke for itself, despite being a Russian-speaking city, as you pointed out. This whole idea that Russians came in to defend the Russophone population of Ukraine falls completely flat when you think about how many Russian speakers they've murdered. But going back to their supporters or apologists mm -hmm. in the West, you highlighted what essentially amounts to kind of the cyclical partisan trend where, you know, in Soviet times, it was the left that was serving as an apologist for dictators. And, and perhaps and maybe even then I'm being a little bit too generous because I think those people still exist today. So it really just depends on the dictator, right? Mm. Where, you know, there are certainly <laughs> elements of the left today that have spoken out in defense of the Cuban regime, right? When the police were cracking down. Very rare is the person who supports freedom and democracy across the board. Yeah, Very rare is such a person. It's tough, right? I mean, everybody wants to cheer for what they perceive to be their own team. And unfortunately, the question is, how do we come to define those teams, right? I wish we could have defined those teams as freedom-loving people versus authoritarians. But instead, we've defined those teams in a way which kind of cuts across democracies and dictatorships. So... With respect to those on the right who today still believe, whether genuinely or in bad faith, that... Isn't it sort of terrible, Uriel, that such views would be thought to be popular, that you do it for clicks and views and so on? Seems like these views ought to be unpopular, you know? The grift <laughs> ought to be the other way, so to speak. That's exactly right. And yet here we are. The only reason they disingenuously make these arguments is, to your point, they get clicks from them. People buy into them. And I wonder what we can do to break through. I mean, obviously, there's some people that are just beyond our reach. But, you know, I look back to Candace Owens' tweet, right? Now, again, I don't know Candace Owens. And I don't know whether she's genuine or not. I'll be honest with you. I actually don't know which would be better. Whether, you know, it's better for her to be genuinely believing these things or if it's better for her to be cynically trying to drum up. Genuine, I think. And it wouldn't matter if she didn't have so many followers and fans. You know, she is, I think the word today is influencer. She is a real influencer. You know, and she's, she's telling people that Ukraine is not real. It's not a real nation. They're basically Russians. You know, I've heard from a lot of people on the right say that 2014 was illegitimate. This was not a democratic movement. It was a CIA coup. That the United States interferes in Ukraine, Russia interferes in Ukraine. It's just great power politics. And these are expressions of what we used to call in the battle Reagan days, moral equivalence. Mm. 
And of course, what you're referencing is the 2014 revolution of dignity, where the sort of Putin puppet in Ukraine, Yanukovych, was overthrown ultimately. And, and the legitimately elected pro-Moscow man who destroyed his own legitimacy by wantonly killing people, peaceful democratic right. protesters. So if we were to assume for a moment Candace Owens' good faith, mm-hmm. which I personally believe is a pretty significant assumption. Yeah, I, I think she's ignorant, but maybe not. Either way, let's mm-hmm. assume her good faith for the moment. And let's assume you know, that she's responding, when she says Russian lives matter, she's responding to the excesses where you know people in New York will call for a boycott of Russian restaurants in New York, which are frequently run, by the way, by Ukrainian oh, yeah, immigrants. So but if we assume that for just a moment, and then you know we hear Russian lives matter, I wonder, do you think that voices of Russian dissidents, people like Gary Kasparov, people like the thousands, tens of thousands of Russians who have now been arrested as a result of protesting the regime, do you think highlighting their bravery, highlighting their opposition to Putin, highlighting the incredible risks that they've taken. Do you feel like trying to integrate that somehow into the conversation might alter or affect the thinking of someone like Candace Owens? I don't know about her as someone like. That's an interesting way of putting it. I really don't know. It's worth a try. We did it in the Cold War. We said, look at Václav Havel in Czechoslovakia. Look at Lech Walesa or Wałęsa in Poland. Look at Sakharov in Russia. Listen to what Sharansky is saying in Israel. Listen to what Solzhenitsyn is saying in Vermont. You know, listen to Bukowski, read To Build a Castle. I think that was the name of his memoir. I mean, read Arthur Kessler, Kersler, you know, Darkness at Noon. These things were terribly important. And it's upon us again. And I'll say something that may surprise you a bit. I have a certain patience for isolationists, genuine isolationists. I can understand them. The real isolationist, who's in the same way I can understand, I may not admire conscientious objectors, some of them, but I understand them. And I understand the isolationists. People say, look, it's too bad about that situation. A lot of people are getting killed, enslaved, or re-enslaved, subjugated. And it's really too bad, but we need to stay out I'm an anti-interventionist. Wake me up when they get to Des Moines. Okay? I don't admire it. I think it's foolhardy and, in fact, ruinous. I can understand it. Here's what I've noticed about these people who are sort of isolationist or sort of anti-interventionist. And by the way, I think interventionist and anti-interventionist are the stupidest words because the truth is most of us are anti-intervention most of the time and for intervention Mm. in most cases. I mean, it's like the words (laughs) pro-war and anti-war. No one's pro-war except for psychopaths, right? But here's my problem with these people. I'm thinking of Ron Paul and his running for president in, I think, 08 and 12. He wanted us to have nothing to do with Iran and the Middle East. Fine. I don't admire it but I could understand it. But he sneaked in, or as we say in my native Midwest, he snuck in defenses of the Iranian regime. And if there are people on the right or left who say, you know, stay out of Ukraine, leave NATO, whatever, you know, I think it's all terrible, I could sort of understand it. These people are misguided Fortress America people. But no, they've got to lie about the Ukrainians and lie about Putin in his favor. They're defensive of Putin's regime. 
They excuse it. They perfume it. Why? Why? They're not so much isolationist or anti-interventionist as they are apologists for dictatorship. I think that's a very clear way of defining them. Well, let me rephrase that, of defining a specific subset of the quote-unquote non-interventionist crowd, which I think is a rather significant subset because so many times when I hear people say, this doesn't concern us, in the same breath, the very next sentence usually follows with, well, it's complicated. Both sides are to blame. Mm -hmm. Putin's not so bad. Ukrainians are not so good. Mm -hmm. And it truly is mind-blowing. But let's actually set that subset aside for a moment. Once again, let's assume good faith on the part of those who are genuinely non-interventionist without the helping of apologia. Mm -hmm. How would you respond to those people? How would you respond to people who say genuinely that rather than giving money for Ukrainian aid, we should be spending it all domestically? Ah, right. Well, things are connected now. And I'll adapt an old phrase, you may not be interested in the world, I will say, but the world is interested in you. And we've learned a thing, or should have learned a thing or two in the past about deterrence, containment, drawing lines, standing up to dictators. You know, these turn out not to be small countries far away about whom we know little or nothing. That's just the way it is in the world. And, you know, I personally don't wish it so. Obviously, there's a moral case, being one's brother's keeper and so on. But if that's too gooey for you, let's leave that aside. It's in a country's own interest to check a murderous expansionist, in Putin's case, anti-American dictator. I mean, he has interfered in our elections. Some people like it, if he's interfering the right way from their point of view. Uh, He is an international bad actor. And everyone says, and they're quite right, the United States can't be the world's policeman. So true. But I often echo Kirkpatrick. What if there's a world criminal? Who will stop him? Who will check him? You just let him go rampaging from house to house, city to city, country to country. When does he come to your door? When does it start to affect you? So, you know, I think there are, obviously, there are moral reasons to oppose Putin and his assault on Ukraine. And would he stop with Ukraine? That's another question. Sure, there are moral reasons, but also hard-headed, so-called realist reasons, just from naked, raw, brute, amoral self-interest. I think that's right. And I would expand upon that, too. I mean, Joy Behar, in the early days of the invasion, you know, lamented the potential impact it would have on her upcoming vacation to Italy. And, you know, she was roundly criticized for having said that. And I won't comment as to, you know, whether the criticism was just or unjust. But I will say that I do think something like that does affect a lot of people in the U.S., right? People who aren't necessarily afraid of their cities getting shelled, or as you pointed out, may find the argument that you are your brother's keeper to be overly gooey. But they do understand this idea of, well, in a world where criminals, so to speak, people like Putin can run amok, your own freedoms are curtailed. Your freedom to travel, your freedom to trade, your freedom to essentially go about your business secure in the knowledge that certain rights, rules, 
and norms on an international stage will be respected. You know, it becomes a much more dangerous world, a much more unstable one, a much more unpredictable one, and one in which rather than countries benefiting from one another's relationships, they turn inward out of fear, out of protection, self-protection. And so it strikes me that if there were a way to try to bring that home for folks, for those who are sort of genuinely isolationist, but isolationist in kind of a good-natured way, in a good faith yes. way, yes. to try to bring home to that group what genuinely horrible, genuinely impactful consequences we would see as a result of world order <laughs> falling apart from invasions such as Putin's in Ukraine. You may think this too cynical. You may think I'm underestimating people, Uriel, but I think it'd be a relatively rare person who could grasp this in advance. I think people need to experience it and be touched by it and then say, oh, I see. I think it's asking a lot for people to see this in advance. I think of the pivot to China people. Ah, oh, pivot to China, Russia, Europe, who cares? Old news, pivot to China. Well, don't you think Taiwan is involved in this whole Ukraine drama? You know, but I think people have to see it, many of them. Well, that brings us to what I think will probably be the last thing we talk about here, which is getting people to care, getting people to react, getting people to take risks for a cause that may or may not be lost, certainly a cause that's incredibly difficult to achieve. And at least one of my hypotheses for how do we get people Americans to react ahead of time before experiencing these consequences is for them to hear testimony from those who have lived in oppressive countries and from those who have on their own skin faced the consequences of oppression and brutal regimes. And of course, I'm talking about dissidents, right? Those people who take unbelievable risks in order to do what's right. And for some context, I'll mention that my father was a dissident in the Soviet Union, spent a little bit of time in jail, and ultimately risked it all to try to leave the USSR for Israel as soon as the doors opened in 1972. But you've worked with countless dissidents over the last few decades. You've met, I mean, I, I don't think I've mentioned a single name that RDI has worked with that you did not personally know or have interviewed or, or written a profile of at some point. And so I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about them. You know, what do you think gives some people the bravery to dissent while the vast majority, to some extent, understandably, keep their heads down? I've asked at least 50 people that question, probably closer to 100, of all nationalities from all over the world, and almost always they give the same answer. I don't know. <laughs> I can do no other. I'm compelled to. I can't help it. I don't know. Now, some of them, this is not very nice to say, some of them are a little crazy. Mm. And you hear the phrase, recklessly brave, insanely brave. Some of them are like that. Most not. They don't know. Why do people do things they know will lead to their arrest and torture? I love physical comfort. 
I adore physical. I'm sitting now in my <laughs> living room talking to you. Got a Diet Pepsi nearby. I have at least one milkshake a day. Fat and happy or semi-happy. <laughs> These people do things they are sure. It's not even a risk because in some cases, they know that their action will lead to their arrest and torture. They do it anyway. And I ask them why and they almost always say, I don't know. I can do no other. I think people are built that way. I do. There are people who are stubborn, who are determined, who are willing to stick their neck out. That's why they're exceptional. We wouldn't know them or celebrate them or admire them if they were common. You know, uh, the Bible says, come out from the world and be separate. And everyone smiles at them. What a wonderful phrase. It's so hard to do. So hard to do. You hear some people say that man is a herd animal, and they say that there's a deep biological basis for this. It's dangerous outside the herd. You know, where wolves lurk, you can get eaten. I don't blame, I blame the oppressors, certainly, and I blame the collaborators. But those who keep their heads down, I get that totally. And those who don't, that's why they're heroes. It costs you something to be a hero. They're the exceptions to the rule. And I admire them more than I can say. And since I risk nothing personally, except for, you know, mean tweets or nasty comments under articles or something, or maybe denied some cable hit at 1.13 in the morning on channel 363, I risk nothing. The least I can do is highlight or make better known those who do take those risks. Because I believe in the end, this is a little bit idealistic, you might say, they're taking these risks for all of us. Because we all value freedom in our own ways. Some people actually work for it, work to preserve it, or to overturn tyranny and make freedom come about. I admire them more than I can say. Take your friend Gary Kasparov. Now, here's a chess hero. He could have spent the rest of his life being the chess hero. He didn't have to get into politics. He could just go to convention after convention, auditorium after auditorium, being adulated, you know, thunderous applause, you know, little kids looking up at him worshipfully, signing chess boards. I don't know if that's a thing. I've never, I've, I've never played Oh, it chess, is. But it, it is. is. Yeah, yeah, there, okay. I've seen many yeah. a signed chess board. Yeah. He could have spent his whole life being a chess hero. He didn't have to get involved in the rest of this stuff. Everyone could understand it, you know. He stays in his own lane. And I've told him before that I greatly admire him for this. And he said, you know, I never wanted to be a statue. For one thing, think what pigeons do to it. Ha! <laughs> I like that. So I could see Gary saying that. That's a good line. So my last question here, because I've also heard some variation of, of the response that you just gave a number of times. But one of the things that I've been struggling with, struggling with personally, struggling with for the purposes of RDI, has been this idea of, well, how do we inculcate some modicum, some small amount of dissent, you know, some small amount of willingness to set yourself apart from the herd? Because luckily, in the U.S., we do not risk torture or arrest for speaking our minds. 
dissenting from our tribe, so to speak, you know, and when I say that, I mean, like, our social milieu, right, which, you know, living in Manhattan, there's one social milieu. But of course, if I were in rural Alabama, that would be a very different milieu. And, you know, I think we need a certain level of dissent in both places that right now, I think is lacking. And so I've really been struggling to think about how do we encourage it? How do we get people to be willing to take a small risk. Again, not the risk of torture or arrest, but the risk of, you know, for journalists such as yourself, the risk of losing a cable TV spot. I've only one answer. This is not out of my head. This is from decades of experience and struggle and labor and confusion and so on. Just set an example. And maybe it'll make an impression on another person. And that other person might think, oh, he's doing it. Maybe I can. The older I get, the more I think that all we have is our own example. For good or ill, I've set bad examples, and I've set good examples, I hope. I think that's all we have. In some ways, it's actually very inspirational. And you are doing it, baby. And, you know, I do this kind of thing part-time. I'm a music critic and a political journalist and so on. You are devoting your life to it, and uh, I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jay. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the third episode of Winter is Here. If you're interested in subscribing, join us at rdi.org or on Substack at renewdemocracy.substack.com. And please read our democracy brief written by the very talented James Lewis, where we talk about some of the democracy-related stories that you might not have heard about. So with that, thank you, everyone. Until next time.